So the thing with spaceflight is that it's very expensive, but at the same time, I think as a human species, we want to send a lot of people, even in low Earth orbit, just to be in space. There's a psychological effect that comes into play when you send astronauts up into space. You see how the Earth is and how fragile our ecosystem is and how small and insignificant we are. And hopefully that might trigger some kind of perspective and some kind of empathy for our fellow human beings whom we disagree with so much. Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia Frentz. And I'm Serena Chen. This episode, we're talking about space. Space travel, space science fiction, space real life stuff. Space toilets. Yeah, all, everything. <laughs> um, both of us have been fascinated by space since we were very small. And I, in fact, challenge you to find a science nerd who didn't at some point wish they could be an astronaut. But it's not just us. The drive to go to space, to get to the moon, and now to go to Mars taps into the most wondrous part of the human psyche, the desire to explore. Space travel is one of the most incredible human endeavours and has involved a wonderful cast of brutally intelligent people from the beginning. While names like Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong are household names, people like Margaret Hamilton, Valentina Tereshkova, Mae Jemison and Nandini Haranath aren't. And we're probably going to discuss a few of those today. This bias is reflected in the stories we tell as well. The Martian didn't star John Cho, Lucy Liu, or Kerry Washington, incidentally all films that I would have watched, and Gravity was groundbreaking in having Sandra Bullock be the astronaut. Similarly, Bioware shattered expectations when they had their female space hero star in the trailer for Mass Effect 3. In this episode, we'll be talking not just about the practicalities of space travel, but also the people who've got us here and the stories that set us up to go further. But first, a question that I constantly think about even when I'm not meant to. Serena, when are we going to Mars? That is a great question that I too think about and have no basis in answering. <laughs> <laughs> so the the most likely contestants uh, as of the moment is, of course, Elon Musk's SpaceX, who are developing reusable rockets. In order to make space travel cheaper, with the ultimate goal of putting a human on the surface of Mars, the other contender is, uh, I think it's a reality TV show or something called Mars One. What about NASA? NASA, so NASA's interesting right now in that their funding has been cut drastically uh, compared to the, to the 70s and the 80s. And so what they're doing is they're contracting out a lot of their missions and their work. And for the longest time, they really had no plan to put a human on Mars, which is what spurred up Elon Musk to start SpaceX, because one of his biggest concerns was human space exploration. Well, that drove and, Mars One as well. Um, the fact that NASA yeah. wasn't going to do it. They were like, well, reality TV, here we go. <laughs> yeah. So that's like two two rather different approaches and when it comes down to it I, I don't know which one I like better the the billionaire or or the reality tv driven one but I mean if it's going to get us somewhere then that's good right 
I think the only problem I have with Mars One is that the idea is that they're basically going to send humans there to die uh, because we just don't have the resources to bring them back. But well, isn't the current yeah isn't the current standard and the reason we're not sending anyone to Mars right now the fact that if we sent them they would die? They would very likely die. It takes, uh, I think, off the top of my head, the best time frame that we have when all the when the planets align, it'll take us about eight months to get there. Um, and because the planets will have moved by the time you've gotten there, uh, it'll take us much longer to get back. It, assuming that you know you don't wait for years and years and years on the surface of Mars. Yeah. And then there's because it takes so long, you've got the the problem of food. <laughs> Just food, which I we mean, haven't really solved. So I've seen The Martian. Yes. Because I'm a nerd. And, like, how practical is the idea that we send food before we send people? I'm asking you very hard space questions, <laughs> and I'm just doing this because you, like, have a degree in physics. So feel free to be like, I don't know. Don't ask me space questions. <laughs> I don't know, but do ask me space questions because this is awesome. This, like... I feel like my brain hasn't been stimulated in so long without space. <laughs> um, so the idea that we send food ahead of time is reasonable in that the food will probably survive. Uh, it's not so reasonable in that space is really big. So if we were to send it somewhere uh, just floating in space for the crew to pick up, that would be very difficult because space is massive and you've got all of these... Um, Oh my god. <laughs> There's variables that you have to control and then you have to think about the gravity and you'd probably send it out there and you'd have to think about the velocity it's going at and where it's going, how you match that velocity. Um, if it's not going very fast then it's going to drift and then you're going to have to calculate for that drift. So that's hard. Um, if you send food and provisions to the surface of Mars first, um, also difficult because of the alignment of the planets and then Mars is not technically a small planet either, so when it touches down, then you're going to have to think, how how good are we at landing our provisions where we need it to be, and how good are we at landing our crew at where, where we need it to be. And it's a bit tricky to land on Mars as well, isn't it? Because it has such a thin atmosphere. Yeah, yeah like, it's very tricky. Currently, when we land stuff back on Earth, um, mm. we use aerobraking, which basically means you slam into the air. Yep. <laughs> and it slows you down <laughs> because yep. the air is like, no, 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 stop. We do not want to yeah. move. Thank you. Um, Mars is a lot less air, which means there's less ability to do that. And it saves a lot of fuel, saves a lot of everything. So it basically mm -hmm. means when you go to Mars, you have to take a bunch of fuel with you so that you can land without dying. Yep. Um, and so that would be a difficulty with the food as well, yeah? Yes, that's everything. And on long-term space missions, like payload is a is a massive issue because you have to account for all the spare fuel you need to to readjust along the way. So it's yeah, it's hard. <laughs> I've got I've got like a slightly ethical question now. Yeah. Um, if someone like says it's okay and they're fine with the concept of dying on Mars, would it be mm. unethical to send them? Uh, I don't think it would be unethical, but at the same time, I don't think it would be good for us <laughs> yeah as, well, as I, humanity yeah i know that um valentina tereshkova who she was the uh first woman in space um so valentina tereshkova was the first woman in space and has like a heap of space walks under her belt and has like come out and said like send me to mars i do not care if i die there i am old but i really want to mm. go to mars 
Um, mm. Which I think, like, is a legitimate feeling, but people have sort of, like, mm. kind of ignored the fact that she's gone, like, I'm fine with going to Mars and dying. I'm up for it, I'm Russian. Um, right, so that's that's kind of, like, a different situation than if it were to be, like, a reality TV Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think I'd be way more okay with that, because that would be handled with more care. Whereas a reality TV show, we're basically screening someone's prolonged death to the world and that doesn't feel right to me yeah i had um had a very interesting conversation actually with a uh, a space psychologist um called oh space psychologist <laughs> yes um called mark Durboom. Cool. um he works at st vincent's in melbourne um and he said he finds the psyche of people who go for mars one quite interesting because like the idea that you would apply for a reality tv show where like you have to pay to apply as well, right? Like, where the outcome is like, no, you do, because I looked up applying. Um, (laughs) I considered going for this. But, like, someone who would say, I would leave everything on Earth behind and go to Mars and maybe never come back. The kind of person that is. Probably never come back. Well, like, it's surprisingly diverse, but it's also fascinating Mm. to look at the kind of people that that attracts. Yeah, so what kind of what kind of people like what what do they find? I mean like well, I don't think there've been any formalized studies done, but um in our sort of chats he said like they tend to be adventurous, they tend to be like risk takers, which aren't the kind of traits that like NASA likes. If NASA sees no. a risk taker and an astronaut, they're like, <laughs> Goodbye, thank you for coming to the space program, never come back. But yeah. they're kind of the more adventurous risk takers, often people who don't have very many strong personal connections on Earth. Um mm. And who are, like, slightly more social. Because, like, part of the idea behind Mars One is you have to spend a bunch of time with other people who you don't know. Uh, So, like, anyone with social anxiety is cut off at the pass right there. Um, Yeah. Okay, so that all kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, what you'd expect the uh, psyche of people who apply for Mars One to be. But it sort Mm. of remains that we have, like, essentially, like, this large social experiment happening very quietly in the background and every so often. Um, so I've subscribed to the Mars One newsletter and I'll get another email being like, we're up to stage three. And I'll be like, oh, good. <laughs> this is exciting. It looks like they are about to come up to group challenges round three. Which makes it sound so, kind of like Survivor. Which, I mean, is yeah, what they're going is, for. But, you know, Survivor, Mars. To think that this is... Literally quietly going around in the background, as you said. Oh, yeah. Because, like, yeah, Mars One is uh, scary, but also very, very interesting. I very interesting anticipate it not working, but I think its failures will teach us a lot. The thing that gets me about this is I am all for it because, well, I'm all for the idea minus the reality television part of it. It's my favorite part. (laughs) (laughs) That is, oh, that is my least favorite part. That. It somehow makes, I don't know if it cheapens the whole idea or if it makes it more impactful. I think it also has, probably unintentional, but it has a degree of um, commentary on our society today where it's just like, we're being watched all the time anyway. Like, think about how much footage NASA puts out of astronauts doing normal things. Mm. Think about how recorded, like, people are in their day-to-day lives when you don't even consider that like you exist in a reality tv show like astronauts to an extent mm. are sort of always online in some way and so mars one yeah, isn't really those... that different except it has you know challenges and yeah probably jeff props like that's <laughs> but that kind of surveillance is is different in that there's no 
there's no one like making a buck out of it yeah you know I, I don't know i think it's it's just my uh natural aversion towards advertising <laughs> is probably the only thing feeling this this terrible feeling in my stomach but like no matter what happens they're gonna learn a lot and that knowledge is going to be important i think i don't think i would call myself supportive of mars one by any way i'm just sort of hesitantly excited to watch it right right yeah because no matter what it's going to be interesting right? oh yeah oh yeah, yeah. definitely would mm. you go to mars would i go to mars mm. uh the question <laughs> the question would be would i come back and the answer right now is no so no i i wouldn't go to mars i mean like, yes, there's the scientist within me that says you would discover so many things and you'd, you'd see another world and, like, you'd finally understand how small the Earth is and our place in the universe and that, that in some ways, is more important than anything. But at the same time, I have family here and I have <laughs> loved ones here and, and that kind of... And, I like, I, we're going to die anyway and, like, a lot of people are understandably like you know if i'm going to die somehow i'm going to die spectacularly and that's cool like i i totally understand that and a part of me do, does feel tempted to participate in that thought but at the same time for me personally what matters to me is the people that i love in this life yeah but that's different for different people you know yeah definitely i'm genuinely not sure some days i'm like yeah hate this planet let's mm. go to mars see you on mm, the red planet like- okay bye we yeah. out um, and some days it's like, well, I'd want to come back. Like, you think a round trip to Mars would probably be like three years because of how orbits work, right? Like, oh, more, definitely more. But yeah, so like, say three to five years. It's just like, I'd do, I'd do that. Yeah, I'd do that. It's not that. It's not that long. I mean, if if you could come back, like if I could come back, definitely, yes. Yeah. If I could come back. And also if I pass the training rounds, <laughs> which are very physical. And I don't know if I'm that fit. <laughs> I joined this gym and like every time I don't want to go to the gym, I'm like, Sophia, do you want to be an astronaut or not? Let's go for a run. <laughs> that is the best way to think about it. Oh my God. I am going to tell myself that because I've been like, Serena, you need to be healthy. Otherwise you're going to like be sick for two weeks. Also with us going to space, um, I believe actually I'm going to fact check this. Give me two seconds while I open my sweet downloads from NASA. <gasps> sweet, sweet NASA data. Mm. Mm. The smell of science. Get me that dark web NASA pictures of dark web NASA. aliens. <laughs> yep. <Yeah>, okay. So, <laughs> shut up. Um, so with us going to space, it would actually be like, so... There's, like, a degree of physiological differences between men and women going to space. And the part where we come out on top, right, where women absolutely win, hands down, is that female astronauts don't, like, don't have the vision loss that a lot of male astronauts get, which is, like, while in space. And, like, that's quite a serious issue when you're in space and you can't see properly. Um, I would not have guessed that. And... We also don't suffer from the hearing loss that male astronauts tend to get. Um, so I would not have guessed that. Male astronauts, when they get older, they tend to have hearing loss, both in space and on Earth, if they've been in space, and they have this bias towards loss of hearing in the left ear. Women don't have either of that. Like, we have 
statistically insignificant differences in hearing loss between female astronauts and the general oh, population. Do we know why? No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. There's, yeah. Wow. There's very little reasons that we know about the differences between um, male and female uh, astronaut happening. So I guess it's a very small sample size, so you couldn't really, like, Oh, there are, like, a surprisingly high amount of uh, female astronauts. Oh, no, I mean just, like, astronauts in general. Yeah, true. Um, there are a few things that are understandable. So it's stuff like uh, female astronauts are more susceptible to um, – you get, like, weird blood pressure differences when you've been in microgravity or zero gravity for a while, and that can, like, mm. mess you up a little bit. And women get yeah. that a bit lo- bit worse than men. Um, mm. And that's kind of understandable because, like, our heartbeat's a bit different. We have, like, different center of gravity. Like, everyone knows mm. that. We're more likely to have urinary tract infections, which is because our urinary tract is tiny and is so mm. easily colonized. Like, standard, standard. Uh, <laughs> please yeah. stop me if you need me to, like, explain some of this biology chat because I know I tend oh, to no, just no. be like, oh, yeah, everyone knows this. Um, and no, I, we think, te- I think people know what a UTI is. Well, like, uh, and why women get them more than men, right? Because yeah, women have, yeah. like, small baby urinary tracts. Yeah. Uh, whereas and men are, like, urinary tract everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, women also, so, you know how when astronauts come back to Earth, they, like, they can kind of be, like, allergic to Earth? Yes, yes. So women have that more. So okay. if we go to space, we can't come back, Serena. Oh, that's because cool we would be my allergic. Come with me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can. You'll just like have be allergic yeah. to Earth for a long time. Yeah, you'll, you'll be a bit sick. Yeah. Um. So like, we'd definitely be on top with regards to like functioning well in space compared to men, which is nice. I'm imagining like a sci-fi novel in which, um, in which like the genders separate and the women colonize space and the men stay on the ground because that's just what we're biologically. <laughs> Was it? Oh, Greg is just like mouthing to me to to read um, Ursula Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness. Yes. Apparently this. Oh, okay. I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it. I'm not going to ask for spoilers. (laughs) No, I've like, I've got like quite back into science fiction. It just really frustrates me that so many science fiction writers are like, you know what would be great? Earth society, but in space. Let's not even try and imagine a utopia. Let's just have class distinctions and racism. So... That's a strange kind of idea, and I'm trying to understand why it appeals to so many people at the moment. And this is, like, a general kind of um, thought in all, like, sci-fi, fantasy, anything else, is that we tend to, we in general, tend to like the gritty kind of uh, quote-unquote realistic fiction, the stuff that doesn't really challenge us. Well, even realistic fiction has way fewer lesbians in my life. So not even realistic, just like, like the so the society lesbians. accepted and perpetuated idea <laughs> of realism. <laughs> and it's like The Martian as a as a book and I really want to say like I would not recommend reading the book of The Martian because it's so much really? worse than the movie in like the incredible sexism wow. it shows. And it's just like, oh yeah, that's uh, that show wow. is a novel, eh? That's uh, I'm gonna. So I was planning to read huh. the Martian before I saw the movie, but then, of course, you know, I'm lazy. I like to say I'm busy, but really, in reality, I'm I'm very lazy. So I, I just ended up <laughs> seeing the movie without reading the book, and I would have never have guessed that it was. You should read the book, okay? Because it makes you appreciate that's the movie a lot more. Because I did, 
I did think like, okay, Matt Damon, whatever. But, you know, Jessica Chastain as the captain of the rescue ship and Donald Glover as a physicist. Yeah. Like, but that Donald Glover is so like happy. hot young astrophysicist is right? everything I want in my life. Damn, son. Yes. Yes. <laughs> like, I paid to see that movie twice. Like, full movie theater dollars. Damn. That is how much I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. Full movie dollars. <laughs> I think the only movie I've ever seen twice is Inception and Gravity. And Gravity was so great. Gravity was... I, I know, I know. I also know that we don't entirely agree on Gravity. Do we not? I th- I think Gravity was very good. Mm. Uh, but I've also been quite vocal with my criticism of Gravity. Oh, I would like to hear criticism because I haven't heard it. <laughs> Moderate spoiler for Gravity, so like... Fast forward like a minute if you want to see this film and you haven't yet, but it came out years ago. Get on, get over. Yeah, get on. Get on the bus. (laughs) Get on it. Um, (laughs) I really dislike the fact that like her main uh, motivator is like a child. Right, right. Like that really, really grates on me. Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. Um. Also, like, she can't get anything done unless the ghost of George Clooney is talking to her, which... Uh... <laughs> so I'm so happy that he ended up being a ghost because it, it wasn't clear during that scene whether he actually came back or, or she was hallucinating. In fact, it was, it was implied that he actually came back. And I remember when he, when he came back and he and went into the capsule, my heart just dropped. I was like, fucking damn it. Guy comes Leave, back. Leave, George Clooney. This is not your place. Yeah, and then it turns out that she was just hallucinating because she was on the verge of death, and I was like, yes! <laughs> Thank God he's actually dead. Like, that would that would have been the, the worst cliche to enact if George Clooney had actually came back. Um, I think the other thing, and this is like a, has been a slowly building rage. Um, so you, you know about Sally Ride, right? Yeah. So Sally Ride, first American woman in space. Bisexual. Which mm. means somewhere there is a list of notable bisexuals, and both myself and Sally Ride are on that list. That's a beautiful quote. There has still not been a space movie with an LGBTQ protagonist. Yeah, what's up with that? And it's like the first woman in space yeah. was one of us. The and first woman, like first American woman in space. Uh, no shame to Valentina Tereshkova; she was amazing. But like first American woman in space. So I'm googling movie and I'm about so alone. Sally Ride. <laughs> Because surely there's a movie about, like, for fuck's sake, Sally I mean, Ryan, man. Probably, but they might have, like, messed it up like they did with the imitation game, right? Right. It's like, yes, Alan Turing was gay, but we're going to make a movie about how he was in love with a woman. <sighs> I'm glad I didn't see that movie. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't either. <laughs> I, I didn't know anything about the movie, but it was, like, Benedict Cumberbatch, and I feel mean, but I don't like his face. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's just like, you know what? I know the story of Alan Turing and I know how awesome he was and I don't need to see this movie. I think also, like, as long as we're on the subject of storytelling, something that I have suggested we have an entire episode on, but apparently we're talking about it now. Oh, we like, can have another episode on that. I'm sure there's lots <laughs> so to talk about. We can have many episodes. Yes. The way we tell Alan Turing's story, I find, is, like, aggressively sanitized. Oh, Yeah. Even even in some of the, like, bios that I've read online, it's aggressively sanitized. Well, it's just like, you know, he saved England. He, like, was a code breaker. He was amazing. He, like, 
fixed the Second World War to an extent, along with Chishin Wu and all the people working on the Manhattan Project. Mm. Um, and then it's also like, and then he died. We don't know how. It was a mystery. Goodbye. And it's like, he was given electroshock therapy because, you know, the country that he saved told him that he was inherently wrong. Like, he killed himself because he was essentially tortured to death. That is the most fu- And, like, it's... So, just to add to his list of contributions, because it's, you know, he didn't just, you know, play a massive part in ending World War Two and cracking all those codes, but he is widely known as the father of artificial intelligence and modern computer science. Like, yeah. just so much of his work was groundbreaking and relevant still today. I think as well, like, the way we sort of tell our history contributes to, like, the erasure of the involvement of women Absolutely. in the space program, right? Like, Absolutely. So do you know um, do you know about Margaret Hamilton? I have heard of that name. Have you seen, like, the picture? So there's a picture, which we'll put uh, a link to in the show notes, um, of Margaret Hamilton, who was one of the coders on Apollo. <gasps> oh, is this the girl? Like, she looks like a very young girl, and she's standing next to, like, this pile of paper is the code that she hand-wrote. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. I'm terrible with names, but I know that picture. She, like, yes. she's fantastic. She's amazing. Yes. And, like, no one talks about her. We're just like, oh, yes, the men that did this. And it's like, Margaret Hamilton mm-hmm. wrote a pile of code taller than her. And it took us to the moon. Yeah. Hell fucking yes. And computers were, like, really bad back then. Computers computers are terrible. If, like, I mean, we can't look at phones anymore because phones are, like, basically supercomputers now. Um, but... <laughs> But think think back ten years and think of what a phone looked like, and that phone had more computing power than they had to get to the moon. So we're talking about um, space this episode because Sophia was invited to talk about women in space for the space gala in Melbourne. Uh, no, no, the space gala is a different thing. I'm speaking at the Final Frontier Festival. Oh, okay. <laughs> You're invited to to speak to some awesome space event. Is is what I know. So yeah. what I uh, am wanting to hear and what I'm sure that our listeners, whoever they are, uh, are also wanting to hear is maybe a sneak peek of what you'll be talking about and anything interesting. I'm going to be talking a little bit both about like the history of women in space and how we continue to treat female astronauts and women who work in the space program and women, particularly in like the astrophysics side of science. So I'm in... November 2015, there was uh, an interview with Russia's latest team of cosmonauts, um, which are eight women. Uh, And their boss uh, said when queried about them, women might be no worse than men. (laughs) What? And it's like, well, I mean, true, yes, but also what, what, (laughs) what? Um, and essentially, like, in their one of their first media interviews, they were sort of asked how they would cope in space without men or makeup. And the kind of quotes flying around were like, ah, oh, well, you know, two housewives, they ruin a kitchen. And, like, to their credit, um, one of the women on this mission, Daria Komisarova, said, you know, we're very beautiful without makeup, we think we'll be fine. Um, which is, like, such a wonderful, calm response to that. But, like, that occurred in 2015. And, like, oh, that's really? not just an issue that occurs, like, in Russia. Like, because we can look at Russia and be like, oh, yes, they hate the gays. They're so backwards. Silly Russians. <laughs> um, 
But like, then you think about the fact that one of the researchers who uh, worked on Philae, which was um, part of the rocket that we landed on a comet, you might remember this actually. When yeah, he saw the live landing. On, yeah, when he went on TV to talk about the project, he was wearing a shirt covered in women, posed suggestively oh, wearing yeah. bikinis. Yeah. And that occurred in 2014. Yes, I remember that. That was horrific. That and was... it's like, well, like, wearing that shirt in 2014 says to girls who look at that, like, this person sees me as an object. The kind of researchers I will work with are, like, not going to see me as someone who's smart. Mm. And that just creates such a hostile environment in um, space research and in, like, all of that towards yeah. women. And I think that's absolutely disgusting that it's happening, like, essentially today. Yeah. The uh, physics as a as even an undergrad major, I'm pretty sure, is still the, the lowest in terms of female versus male ratio. Um, it definitely was the, the lowest overall when, when I was studying. I think yeah. our class at Otago was actually some kind of fluke. We got 50-50 in our honours year, and that was awesome. Yeah, no, But I it's definitely that. not the case worldwide. It's a it's a difficult environment for young women to go into, and I'm constantly mm. impressed. But then equally, we have things like um. So you might you might recall uh, <laughs> that a team in India um put mm. a spacecraft into orbit around Mars, mm. and the pictures of the team celebrating were almost entirely women, oh, in like beautiful saris with flowers all through their hair, like. The deputy operations director of the mission was a woman called Nandini Haranath, who was like, has two kids, wants to be the first female director of like the Indian Space Agency. It's just like, yeah, I can do anything. Um, and so to sort of see those kind of stories creates a really nice counterpoint to the horrible public things that still occur in the areas of like astrophysics and going to space and all of that. And like, there's this nice positive counterpoint to that, the fact that, like, mm. despite the fact that there are still researchers who will wear shirts, like, covered in women posing, doing the boobs and butt pose, and, like, to his credit, the gentleman wearing it, like, has apologised. But he should have known better than to wear it in the first place. And so to have that counterpoint, those Indian women in brightly coloured sarees looking feminine in that environment, that's mm. so meaningful. That's fantastic. I think, I mean, just to show my two cents on on why this is such a such an obstacle in physics, because I think, I mean, I don't think I know. I know that the majority of people in physics, doing physics, and in high levels in physics, understand that the gender disparity is a problem, and they understand that that we're not utilizing half of our our potential brain power. Right? Like this is. This is not just bad because it's bad for diversity, it's bad because it's bad for physics. But also one of the biggest obstacles actually stems from our training as scientists and the belief that training and training in that environment gives us. Um, let me explain. <laughs> so as scientists, we are trained to be as unbiased as we possibly can. And we're yeah. given the tools and the processes to eliminate as much of that bias from our studies as possible which is awesome it's it's great but at the same time i think it's bred the the belief that somehow we've got this innate ability to like 
and eliminate bias everywhere, which we, we don't. No one does. So when it comes to things like interviewing and working with women and minorities in science, I think it's easy for us as scientists to, to overestimate our ability to be unbiased. Yeah. And that to me is a, it's a massive and it's a really, it's a very real and untalked about obstacle. It's just that we, we, think, we think we can be unbiased, but we're really not. And as hard as we try, you know, we've, we've been given the training to, to be as unbiased as we can in our studies, but when it comes to real life, when it comes to interacting with people, we don't have that training. We don't have that specific process down. And it's so easy for us to think that we've got our shit together where we really don't. Yeah. Yeah. We see that science is values neutral and inherently better than everything else. Like there's that XKCD comic mm-hmm. of like um, – disciplines arranged by purity of field yeah yeah but so we we see sociology as something that is like lower and that that is not as scientific and we don't consider the fact that sociology defines how our brains work and how we view the science so that's a that's a big hurdle for us to overcome as people in science and we often don't become aware of our own biases when they fall outside of the very strictly this is science like you know if Mm. you assume that gravity is like um acceleration due to gravity is like 10.3 meters per second per second you're going to be very quickly corrected in your year 11 physics class um to Mm. whatever it actually is i think one of the clearest examples of like allowing uh biases that are theoretically outside of science to cloud our judgment with inside of science is stuff like sending women to space to sort of stay on topic um and that a large part of my talk uh later this week or when you're listening to this in the past and it went brilliantly um (laughs) is sort of the discussion surrounding menstruating in space and sort of in one of the oral histories of nasa um i believe her name's ruth said and i just have said it in front of me she was saying, like, a lot of people, men, predicted retrograde flow of menstrual blood and that it would get in your abdomen and horrible things would happen. All the women were going, I don't think so. Because, like, if you talk to any woman or, like, indeed a gynecologist about how menstruation works, they could tell you that that it's sort of cramping, like, flushes it out, similar to how, like, you can still swallow in space. But equally, like, you don't get horrible, terrible infections if you're, like, bed-bound and menstruate. So um, I'm just going to, like, interrupt you really quickly right there. Have you heard that quote by oh, Sally yeah. Ride when she was talking about – so um, Sally Ride was going up into space and NASA scientists were like, okay, as a – and she was going up there for, like, seven, seven days. days, I think. Uh, yeah. And NASA engineers were like, okay, so we've got 100 tampons. Is that going to be enough? That's so many. And the fact that the engineers at no point were like, maybe we should ask, like, a biologist or a doctor. We should just go to Sally Ride and be like, 100 for seven days? That sounds right. It's costing us upwards of $5,000 a kilo to send things (laughs) into space. We'll just give you heaps of tampons. Uh, so this really nice article that came out in the New York Times back in April that was sort of talking about if we're going to be doing long-range space flight, so going to Mars, um, mm. how would we handle birth control? Because 
Like, while you can get your menstruate, like, menstruate in space, you don't want to. Like, it's not no, going to be fun. And so, like, while you can take the pill, there is a risk of breakthrough bleeding. That's not very good. Um, the two mm. suggestions were the implanon, which is a rod that gets inserted in your arm that lasts up mm. to three years, or the marina. So these are called reversible, long-acting birth control or something like that. Yeah. I have a marina, and I haven't had a period in a year. Oh my god, that sounds fantastic. And um, in Australia, like I got mine, I paid like $130 for it, got put under general anaesthetic, woke up, had terrible cramps for two days, have been free. I've been freed from my uterus, and I, I am safe again. Um, I am literally Googling Marina New Zealand right now. <laughs> uh, so in New Zealand, you can get it funded by the government if you're diagnosed with endometriosis. Um, no, if you can't okay. get it diagnosed with endometriosis, it is still worth it. But, like, that's the kind of thing for women who are going on, like, long-term space flights. If they choose not to menstruate, like, yeah. they fully can. You kind of need that, in a way. Like, I'm already <gasps> unhappy enough changing <laughs> menstrual items in, like, normal Earth gravity. I cannot imagine yeah, that... what it would be like if no. the gods could, like, float up and hit you oh, in the no. face. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, my God. That is equally hilarious and horrific. We no longer have any male listeners. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So one of the things that surprised me quite recently was that we've only – so you know how, like, we have space tourists now? That's a thing that happens. Affirm do you, me. When uh, you say space tourists, do you mean just people in planes flying uh, up at an altitude that would be considered space and then coming down again? No, like people who legit go into low Earth orbit. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, low Earth orbit. For funsies. Yeah. Not- so we've only relatively recently had the first female space tourist, and I'm going to check like what year that was. Um, her name was Anushi Ansari. She was the first uh, Iranian woman of Iranian descent to um, be in space. She's Iranian-American. Um, mm. And obviously she's, like, loaded as heck uh, <laughs> because she went to space for funsies. Um, so the thing with spaceflight is that she went it's to the- very expensive, but at the same time... So this is a difficulty. Like, I think as a human species... We want to send a lot of people, even in low Earth orbit, just to yeah, yeah. be in space. So just for sorry. What, yeah. Oh, what? I was just gonna say she went to the ISS, the International mm-hmm. Space Station. Um, and she went in two thousand. Oh, that's that's legit. That's like legit space times. Um. Yeah. That I wouldn't call that space tourism. I'd call that like. But the idea was that like she paid to go there as an individual, rather than going there for a particular mission. Right. And so that's the sort of, like... Space. So she didn't do any, like, research or anything? Um, she did, but it's still uh, classed as tourism, apparently. Okay. Um, and she did that in 2006. But she was the first female um, space tourist, essentially. And while she was, like, only the f- fourth female space tourist, and... Okay, the Wikipedia page only goes up to like two thousand and nine, but she's Someone's the only. Get on that. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, needs adjustment. Um, but she's the only woman on the list. 
which is I th- I think that's kind of curious as well. But I guess it reflects on the um, earning capacity of women. Yeah, I was just about to ask if she funded that herself. Yeah. Or, like if so, yeah. she paid twenty million, estimated twenty million. I have a citation here. Yep, according to NPR, twenty million. Goodness. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, sorry, you were saying about the human desire to explore. Oh, what was I saying? <laughs> um, so there's a there's a psychological effect that comes into play permanently when when you send astronauts up into space and then they come back down again. And I think it's called the overview effect, and it's the whole idea that you see how the Earth is and how fragile our ecosystem is and how small and insignificant we are and when you see that it puts everything in perspective and suddenly you realize the the inaneness of world war and how meaningless politicians squabbling over things that don't matter are and i think that's a perspective that would be very helpful for a lot of the you know, just for human civilization in general. But the problem is, of course, you can't send everyone up into space. I mean, that's that's ridiculously expensive. So I guess this is this is in like one of the situations where something like a reality TV show might come in handy, is that we'll get all these people tuned in, and all these people will hopefully see in real time what we are as a species on this tiny pale blue dot floating in the middle of nothingness and hopefully that might trigger some kind of perspective and some kind of empathy for our fellow human beings whom we disagree with so much yeah i know that astronauts have expressed the feeling that whenever they sort of hear about a dictator or someone who is preventing poor people from eating or something like that they want to like grab them and take them to the space station and just say look at that Yes, so I actually have the the quote. You got the quote. You should read the actual quote. (laughs) So this is the quote by uh, Edgar Mitchell, who was an Apollo 14 astronaut. And he said, You develop an instant global consciousness, a people orientation, an intense dissatisfaction with the state of the world, and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck and drag them a quarter of a million miles out there and say, look at that, you son of a bitch. It's, That's one of my favorite quotes. It's so good. It, it encompasses so well the, the feeling. It encompasses the feeling that I get when I see the, the photo Earthrise, which was one of the first photos of the Earth taken from the moon. And you see that and you see and you think this is all of our lives on this tiny little planet. This is everyone that I've ever known and everyone that I could ever know. And we're all just sitting here in this fragile little ecosystem with an atmosphere that's barely visible. An atmosphere that's smaller, like thinner than the skin of an apple comparatively. Yeah. And just to see how fragile everything is and how. And when you compare that with how divided we all are politically, you know, on the surface of the earth, that mismatch just doesn't. 
it feels insane. It, it doesn't feel right. And that perspective, I think, is something that we could all do well with coming back to. Like even even I lose that perspective. And I'm crazy about space. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think being aware of sort of how related the human race is mm. is often key to unpacking and like dissipating a lot of the anger that we feel over our differences and the lack of support that we offer to like our fellow people. And I mean, you're, you're aware of this as well. Like we both currently live in countries that have uh, a fun history of treatment of their indigenous people. And by fun, I mean awful. Oh, uh, so yeah. bad. And that's just a result of seeing people and deciding within your head that they are not people. And I don't think people obviously don't think the words, you know, they're not people. But it's it's such a it's such a subconscious and it's such an ingrained kind of decision and that kind of undefinable aspect of it is what makes it so dangerous. Is that when you tell people that, you know, you're you're not looking at our indigenous people and you're not seeing them as actual human beings, that doesn't register, like that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like orig- and often like uh, the discussion in Australia is like, you know, you're still kind of treating them like animals and it's like not legally anymore and it's like, okay, that isn't an <laughs> Well done. <laughs> that that isn't a point in your favour? Like <laughs> Yeah. Well, and that's where I think things like so to circle back to science fiction for a point, mm. stories like the stories Cliff Man are telling is so compelling, is that it is giving voice to people who for a very very long time have been voiceless and they are like using their own voice as well rather than having like white people Proximus. tell the story and yeah. it's like allies are useful allies are really really oh, good totally. but you need to know the correct moment to sort of step back and let something go in your place and like certainly mm. clever man is doing that in the context of like australian science fiction and certainly entering the mainstream to an incredible extent, the way Indigenous stories just wouldn't have if they hadn't been told in this very compelling, very science fiction way. So to wrap up, is there anything else about women in space that you'd like to mention? I think we shouldn't underestimate the importance of continuously telling the stories, both like of fictional women in space and the real women in space. So um, mm. Mae Jemison, who was the first African-American astronaut, uh she has said in interviews that she was inspired by Lieutenant Uhura on the original series of Star Trek and was like, oh, check it out, black woman in space. I can roll with that. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. This is just how I talk. Uh, Oh, my God, that's so good. And so if we continue to sort of talk about the fact that there have been um, people of Indian descent in space and like we've sent Korean, Chinese and Japanese women to space. Uh, and like anyone can do that. Like a lot of the mm. earlier astronauts particularly, but I, I reckon even today have come from like not privileged backgrounds. Certainly if you want to pay 20 million for a space flight, you need to come from money or be very good at being an entrepreneur. <laughs> um, but, like, otherwise, you can sort of claw your way up there and become an astronaut. And I think by telling those stories, we really encourage the future people who we need to have in space to be, like, discovering things and understanding our position both 
in the context of like humanity, but also in the context of the universe. Definitely. I had no idea that she was inspired by a horror. That's that's so great. I know, right? That's so fantastic. Like to to the people writing stories out there, this is how much power you have. You have the power to create an astronaut. Yeah. And it's like we're going to keep exploring outer space, not just for the many societal benefits, none of which we discussed in this episode. Um, oh, shit. No, we haven't Besides the fact that we plan to. Um, we're planning on going to Mars. Like, several different groups are going, yeah, no, we'll, we'll make it to Mars. It'll be great. But mm. if we do it in a way that includes the full spectrum of the human race, that's an incredibly beneficial thing because it means you get, like, more people understanding things, collaborating, working together. And, like, mm. as much you as... You tap into that diverse background yeah. that you wouldn't and like as much as you probably hate group projects at school there is this incredible joy to working with other people to solve a problem and i think it really is if we have a diverse group of people they're just they're they're gonna be it's gonna be a good time awesome thanks for listening to things of interest the show about life and tech through a feminist lens if you're interested in what we've discussed and want to know more, we've got comprehensive and hopefully well-written show notes. Hopefully. I'm going to write them. They're going to be amazing. Oh, you'll be fine. <laughs> you'll be all good. You can find us on our website at thingsofinterest.co and on Twitter at at castinginterest. And if you've got something you want us to discuss, ideas for how we could improve, or media you want us to review, drop us a line through either of those. And as always, leave us a review on iTunes so we know what's cool and not so cool thanks for listening and stay in touch